When first invited to this symposium, I nearly declined, for I was not immediately aware how superbly qualified I am to speak on the question. As I told Rabbi Leifer, appearances to the contrary, I do not have a particularly strong Jewish background. But when he explained the high purpose of the colloquy, I could see that this is no trivial empirical topic, but rather that it is the kind of categorical inquiry in which data is certainly an annoyance and probably an embarrassment. <laughs> Being without any facts is an obvious qualification for successful investigation. In short, this is paradigmatically a philosophical issue. Indeed, it is an a priori transcendental question, and I will dispatch it in two passes. First, from the standpoint of transcendental doctrine of taste, known vulgarly as finding the proof in the pudding. <laughs> and second, from the even more sublime aspect of abstract metaphysics, known popularly as what's what, if anything. <laughs> no need to delay announcing the conclusion. All the better to have it clearly in view from the start. For in philosophy, it is often unclear from the argument itself what its conclusion is. <laughs> True philosophy leads to the latke. I shall not be showing that the latke is, in a simple sense, better than the hamantash. That cannot be done, for the latke and hamantash are not commensurate. The hamantash is a very, very good thing of its kind. The latke, however, is a perfect thing. <laughs> Now that I've laid the conclusion out, perhaps its transparent correctness is already evident to you. But perhaps not. It takes some practice and a little chutzpah to get these things straight. And so I will help you through the dialectical critique which leads to the celebration of the latke. Part one, doctrine of aesthetical taste, the latke as pure nosh. A perfect object of taste, a thing than which there can be no tastier, must appeal directly. Appreciation is not perfect if, in order to enjoy an object fully, you must take account of what kind of thing it is. This profound truth was first glimpsed in the 18th century by Solomon Maimon, who published a sketchy account under the pseudonym Immanuel Kant. <laughs> that is how it is with hamantash. What is a hamantash? A cake. Not just any cake is a hamantash. It must be made of a certain kind of dough. It must have a specific shape, and it has to be folded around one of a few specified fillings, and it and its name are associated with a long, rich tradition. Of course, we all know these things, but the point is that the essential experience of a hamantash, wonderful though it is, is predicated upon this prior conception. Much modern art is like this. <clears throat> you must know in advance what the artist thought he was doing. <laughs> if you are to make sense of his art. Rigorous criticism forbids reference to these hamantaschen in prospect. Thus it is a strict logical point that the delight in a good hamantash is not a matter of pure taste. Not so with the latke. We all know latkes. Do not let a false empiricism persuade you that we had to learn this. It is innate in all rational pressers. <clears throat> the form of the latke is indeed the form of oral intuition. The pleasure in a latke is the condition of all pleasures of taste. Think of it. A latke need have no particular shape, no required color, no conceptual preconditions. Potato is best, of course, but even this is not of essence. <laughs> the latke is the emblem of taste and art itself, and so there can be no taste when there is not taste for latkes. Footnote. Footnote. 
It is also a simple matter to deduce from this that the eating of a latke symbolizes moral purity. <laughs> but I omit this deduction in order to have space for ontology. <clears throat> Part two, metaphysics of being, the latke as substance. Here we are concerned with the proposition that not only do latkes exist, but that they must exist. <laughs> that there could not not be latkes. Our problem here is not with the proof. The proposition is astoundingly easy to prove. The proposition, however, is impossible to say. <laughs> there is no way to formulate precisely in words the necessary existence of latkes. We are grappling with an idea of reason which has no adequate verbal expression. Wittgenstein once faced this problem and turned away, saying, Wofan man nicht sprechen kann, darüber muss man schweigen. <clears throat> the standard translation given by Pears and McGinnis of this is, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must be silent. However, a strict literal rendering is, if there's nothing to say, sit down and have a knish. <laughs> We, however, must be bolder. Let us take a number of imperfect formulations as a way of getting the inexpressible proposition across by analogy and suggestion. One, Lotkis necessarily exist. That's how it would be put in classical metaphysics. Two, whatever there are, some of them are Lotkis. That's how the proposition is formulated in free metaphysics. <clears throat> Three, in every possible world, there is a latke, though perhaps not the same latke. <laughs> That's the modal semantical formulation. And finally, we have the technical, modal, mathematical, logical formulation. Four, there is an x, such that x is the square root of two, and there is another x, which is a latke. <laughs> When you see that these are but four ways of trying to say the same thing, you will see what unsayable proposition I'm saying. <clears throat> now that we have the proposition, it is necessarily true that there are latkes, we can go for a proof. With necessary truths, it is customary to say that they are self-evident and let it go at that. And that would be enough here for formal correctness. But we can go a bit farther. These proofs are not likely to be more perspicuous than the self-evident proposition itself, but they may help. <clears throat> Why must there be a latke? because the latke is an absolutely and perfectly simple thing, as is revealed in the fact that the idea of a latke is a clear and distinct conception of the mind. When we have such an idea, which is rare, we know that the thing of which the idea is an idea must exist. If there were no latkes, the idea of a latke would not be so simple. <clears throat> you are reminded, no doubt, of so-called ontological arguments, especially those meant to prove the existence of a supreme being. You are right, such an argument can be given for the existence of Lotkis, and I will return to this Logos presently. First, let us consider the treatment of this necessary truth in philosophical semantical ontology, the theory of possible worlds. In every possible world, including this one, the one we are stuck in, <coughs> there is a Lotkis. How do we know this? By discovering that it is impossible to imagine a world in which there is no Lotkis. <laughs> you should try it. Don't take my word for it. First, imagine a world. 
Put in everything you need for a world. This is to be a whole world, not a fragment. Now add in a latke. Imagine a latke in the possible world you've imagined. Now, take that latke out. It cannot be done, can it? Some slower wits may suppose that you have imagined out the latke, but this is merely a misapprehension. When you took out the latke, where did you put it? Because everything must go somewhere. Wherever you put it, it's still in the world. You didn't... You didn't get... Shuffled it around. <laughs> Thus, every possible world has a latke. Footnote. Footnote. You will notice that metaphysics is not so hard once you get the hang of it. <laughs> For a final proof of this metaphysical proposition, that there must be latkes, let us inspect a more classical mode of argument. Some of the most beautifully simple metaphysical proofs have been devised by the great Christian philosophers as ontological arguments for the existence of a supreme being. It is probable that you are most familiar with the arguments given by St. Anselm. One of them is easily adapted to prove the necessary existence of the perfection of edibility. This argument goes fast, and so you must be on your toes. The insight needed to follow the proof is simply the fact that just because something can be said, it doesn't follow that the sayer can mean and think it. Sometimes we mistakenly suppose that something is possible because we can say that it is possible. But as the renowned contemporary philosopher, Dean and Professor Stanley Bates has said to me, quote, you can say anything, but not everything you say makes any sense. <laughs> For instance, you can say it's possible to imagine a world in which Edward Levy has neither a bow tie nor a smug look. <laughs> But it is not really possible to imagine that. <laughs> it was Anselm's genius to concentrate on the question of whether one can say and mean that there is no supreme being. It is an obvious adaptation to ask whether it can be supposed that there is no latke. Consider, the Schlemiel hath said in his heart that there are no latkes. <laughs> the Schlemiel can say this, but he cannot think it, for it makes no sense. What sense is there in a non-existent latke? How can the perfectly edible be absolutely inedible? That makes no sense. A world without hamantaschen would be a wretched world, a world to opt out of. A world without hamantaschen might be unbearable, but a world without latkes is unthinkable. QED. <laughs>